0: 18 plus.
1: It's Friday night. We're headed into a weekend. Got a big uh, state fair broadcast special happening on Sunday, 10 a.m. Make sure you tune in for that. Looking forward to getting out there to the state fair. Uh, coming into the weekend always puts me in a, in a strange mood, an experimental mood a mood to try things just a little bit different. And we're going to do that here on Closing Argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com, and your iHeartRadio app, two ways to stream the program, 9 to 11 weeknights. That's when you can catch us. If that doesn't work out for you for some inconceivable reason, you can go back and listen to the podcast right there in your iHeartRadio app. Just do a search for Closing argument and it'll all pop right up. 651-989-5855 the number to join us Brad Omlin, producing the show taking your calls. One of the things I like to do on the program now and then is challenge the orthodoxy. And and I'm talking I'm not talking about, you know, external orthodoxy. I'm not talking about Democrat orthodoxy, although we certainly do that on a regular basis. But I'm talking about our own like internally, within the conservative movement, within the libertarian movement, within the Republican Party, taking a look at issues where the dogma is well-established in terms of what you're supposed to think, what you're supposed to say, how you're supposed to analyze a particular topic or a particular situation. It's supposed to be automated. It's supposed to be automatic. You're supposed to take it for granted how you're supposed to react. But maybe it's become too automatic. Maybe it's become oversimplified. Maybe we're not applying our principles in the most effective way possible. And I want to I take a, a look at one issue in particular that's relevant due to where we find ourselves both in terms of a recently announced gubernatorial campaign and also an anticipated uh, large legislative push in Washington, D.C., on tax reform, and that is, of course, the issue of taxes and spending and uh, fiscal policy at various levels of government. Now, for the the local context on this, uh, we we had promo tonight that we were going to have Dave Osmick in studio, who announced earlier this week, and in fact on this very air, that he is going to run uh, for the Republican endorsement to be the next governor of the state of Minnesota. Now, unfortunately, due to behind-the-scenes shenanigans, uh, Ozmek is not going to be able to join us tonight. Hopefully, we'll be able to get him on sometime next week. It's unfortunate because I was really looking forward to talking to him specifically about what I'm going to talk about with you right now. To give you some context here on who Ozmek is and, and what it is that he is attempting to bring to the race, let's turn to the coverage earlier this week from the Star Tribune. State Senator Dave Osmick, David Osmick, is joining Minnesota's race for governor with a promise of some Trump-style political brawling that he says Republicans are thirsting for after more than a decade of defeats in statewide races. The mound Republican was elected to the legislature in 2012 as a conservative insurgent and is known at the Capitol as a forceful and at times impolitic voice on behalf of his views. I'm a no nonsense fighter. I fight for the values I believe in, and people are ready for someone who will take the fight to St. Paul, Osmik said in an interview Monday. He will officially launch his campaign on Tuesday. Osmick, 52, is also a project manager for a division of United Health Group. He said his focus as governor would be making living in the state more affordable for all Minnesotans, chiefly through lowering taxes and cutting regulations that increase energy costs and other bills. The taxpayer in Minnesota has been relegated to third or fourth or fifth class status. That needs to change, he said. Now, it's interesting that he leads with the issue of taxation, right? One of the things that has been noted, and I'm not trying to to pile on Senator Osmek here by any stretch of the imagination. I'd, I'd like to think that uh, he and I have a, a fairly uh, friendly relationship. Um, we've been on this air before in the past, and I have no reason to... Uh, have any sort of dismay or or uh, discord with the, the senator. That said, I got to call it like I see it, right? Like, that's my job <laughs> as a commentator. I have to call it like I see it. When you announce your candidacy for governor and your website, which I don't know if this is still the case. It was 24 hours ago. But your website has a header that says why I'm running for governor. And as you scroll down, there's nothing on it and as you peruse a variety and this has been pointed out on twitter i'm not the first person to point this out as you peruse a a variety of different urls that uh, might be potential urls that you could use for your campaign you discover that they've already been appropriated by other people and in some cases utilized to redirect to this article in particular that i'm about to share with you this is from alpha news State Senator Defends Sales Tax Hike in Excelsior, the same senator uh, who just announced his campaign for governor earlier this week uh, on, in no small part, the issue of taxes. Again, this is from Alpha News. Republican Senator David Osmick of Mound is defending his legislation to increase the sales tax in Excelsior, Minnesota. This is from March of this year. Osmik's bill, sponsored in the House by Representative Pat Garofalo, would increase the sales tax in Excelsior by half a cent. Revenue raised would be put towards improving the Excelsior Commons, a recreational park that attracts thousands of Minnesotans and surrounding cities. A three-time Best Friend of the Taxpayer Award recipient, Osmik says he was not keen on raising the sales tax but saw no other viable options for obtaining the necessary funding. Osmic says there are several vital repairs that need to be made including fixing a deteriorating shoreline we're not talking about gold-plated chalets here this is just improving the shoreline so it doesn't continue to deteriorate improving the conditions of the swimming beach and baseball fields and upgrading the facilities explained Osmic. laying it on just excelsior doesn't make sense to me everyone in the south lakes area uses that park Osmick says before introducing the legislation, he met with local mayors and city council members, as well as business leaders in the community, saying all but one business supported the sales tax increase. As written, the legislation would revert back to the original sales tax rate after the necessary funds to make the improvements are secured. Now, the reason why I bring this to your attention, and you know, you're going to have to pay attention here because this is a little bit of a curveball. The reason why I'm bringing this to your attention is not... To, to then go on and say, aha, hypocrite. He says he's for the taxpayer, but in actuality, he supported a tax hike in his local area. That is not the point that I'm about to make. Quite the contrary. I'm going to ask you to consider the possibility that And and look, we, we can get into the, the weeds in terms of the details of what this legislation did. I'm not saying I personally would have voted for it or not. I think there are some, some definite flaws with it. But on a 30,000-foot on a conceptual level, if indeed your shoreline, your park is deteriorating, the facilities are falling apart, and it is it is expected amongst your entity of government that you are going to handle that, how are you going to do it if you don't have the money? Where's the money going to come from? Now, this is, this is a point that as conservatives, as Republicans, and, you know, you're, by the way, in case you you haven't heard before uh, or you might have forgotten in the last 60 seconds, this is coming from a tea partier, right? I was with the tea party taxed enough already, right? 2009, from the beginning, straight through, hardcore. Nevertheless, a blind spark spot in our thinking on fiscal policy and taxes and spending is we don't actually include the possibility, the hypothetical possibility, that government might actually at some point need revenue for something. And this is particularly clear at the local level. And I think part of the, the reason why we have this blind spot as conservatives and as Republicans is because most of our analysis and most of our discourse and our discussion takes place at the state level and at the national level. Now, there are a couple of major differences between the way things are done at the state and national level versus the way they're done at the municipal level. One is the way taxing works, right? You know, you, taxing at the, the state and federal level involves primarily sales taxes and income taxes, rate taxes, taxes that are set by rate a certain percentage of your income a certain percentage of sale revenue goes to the state under that type of system you can actually see increases in revenue without increases in rates you know you just have to have more production in the economy and your the the flat dollar amount that government sees come in will go up that's not true at the municipal level Year after year, as cities and counties decide what their levy is going to be, they, they indicate a flat number, right? They just put out the number of the amount of dollars that they're going to levy. Now, the impact that that amount has upon individual households, individual businesses, individual taxpayers is going to vary depending on a wide variety of, of circumstances. But the point for the sake of our conversation here is that in order to actually increase the revenue that the city or county sees, they have to increase the levy. That's just how it works. They're not going to get the same. It is Ryan
0: here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
1: the uh, federal level. Now, a consequence of that is that you're in a perpetual state of finding yourself behind the eight ball when it comes to things like inflation and increases increases in the cost of living, increases in the cost of operation. You have to increase levies in order to keep what you have, not to get more, not to get your gold-plated chalets, as Osmec points out uh, in, his, in his defense of the Excelsior tax hike, but in order to keep what you have to maintain the parks as they exist to maintain the fire department as it exists to maintain the law enforcement coverage as it exists the city services that you already have you are going to have to as a local official increase the levy and therefore <gasps> raise taxes right now this of course is a mortal sin in the world of conservatism and in the world of the republican party as clearly indicated by this strategy that was comically taken against Osmec as soon as he announced by securing some of the URLs that one might naturally uh, assume were going to direct to his campaign site and redirecting them to this article in Alpha News. But to my mind, it's a blessing in disguise because it provides us with the opportunity to ask the question, What's our answer to this as conservatives, as Republicans? What's our answer to parks deteriorating, collapsing, you know, uh, fire departments not having the equipment they need in order to do their job, law enforcement coverage not being adequate to meet the, the growing needs of a community? What's our answer to that that does not involve increasing revenue? 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is Walter Hudson Twin Cities News Talk am 11:30 1035 fm TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. so i i can anticipate a couple of the immediate answers that i might get to the question i asked before we went to break you know i was articulating this fact that you know at the local level at the municipal level the way fiscal responsibility manifests is significantly different than what we are used to talking about at the state level or at the national level. And that is because in order for a city or a county to actually get a single dollar bill more than they had the year before, they have to conscientiously raise their levies by that dollar amount in order to get it. It's not like the state or the federal government where they could just count on expansions in the economy to bring in more revenue under the same tax rate. And so in that context, we we find ourselves in a situation where just not to get grand new projects going or to build new things or to expand the size and scope of government. But just to maintain what we have uh, as a hypothetical municipality, you have to raise the levy because there's this thing called inflation. There's this thing called cost of living. So what's, what's our answer to that as Republicans, as conservatives, as Tea Partiers, as Libertarians? Is the answer that, nope, we're just going to hold it at zero. We're never going to increase the levy. We're never going to raise taxes on a local level. And just watch as the fire department slowly loses its capacity to replace capital, to, to repurchase uh, or fix their, their engines and their ladders uh, as, as the parks fall apart, as the roads fall apart. Is that our strategy? And, and how is that going to work for us? Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. For this uh, nuanced policy topic, let's go to Anna in West St. Paul. Welcome to the program.
2: Oh, goodness. <laughs> um, I was <laughs> just thinking that, you know, that often taxes, once, your tax always taxed for instance we're still paying for the metro right um dome in downtown minneapolis right and it's like every taxpayer is continuing to pay that once a project is done could the taxes once again go to where they needed down from where they began
1: is yeah they never do i'm i'm
2: they just...
1: never do no. Yeah, no, I, I, I take your point, and and this is the thing is that that that's why it's important to, and and this kind of gets into what I'm what I'm trying to lead us towards, which is a consideration of getting off the focus of whether or not we're going to tax, whether or not we're going to quote unquote find the revenue and shift our focus, redefine fiscal responsibility as looking at the priority, looking at what it is that we are spending the money on. And in the case you cited, you're talking about a football stadium, that's not something we should be doing. So that, that is the reason why the tax is egregious, because of what it is for and what it is being spent on. Okay. All right. Appreciate the call, yes. Anna. Thank you very much. Yep. Anytime. And, you know, this this is the thing that – because. Right now, I see a problem. I see a problem in—and I'm talking about intra-party Republican politics right now. And the problem is this. We have set up a a rhetorical context in terms of how candidates campaign, not for the general election, but specifically for endorsements and for primaries, where it becomes this contest of, you know, who has the most outstanding—and by that I mean standing apart from everybody else— proposal on how they're going to govern in a, in a way that doesn't involve taxation, doesn't involve spending, doesn't involve anything that ha- have become third rails of intraparty Republican politics. And that's all fine and good o- onto itself. The problem is, though, is that when it's divorced from any consideration of how you're actually going to govern, if and when you get elected, then you end up with problems. Because what happens is you, you, you get these these campaigns that promise the impossible, right? They promise things that are simply are not going to happen. And then the people get elected, and it turns out they're not able to do the thing that was impossible when they promised it during their campaign. And this creates frustration, understandably, rightfully, amongst the grassroots, which leads to the next challenge that Ups the ante, raises the bar in terms of the impossible thing that's going to be promised. And it's this cycle that happens over and over and over again until you get a party that's entirely dysfunctional and can't find anybody who's willing to run. Because the people who, ha- who actually understand how things work and have the institutional knowledge don't want to go through the political hell of being called n- un- anti-conservative or not conservative enough because they actually want to govern. And, you know, the, the grassroots is completely disincentivized or or feels disenfranchised by the process, and everybody hates everybody, and you have a party that doesn't work. And I think that on, on some level, this explains a lot of the dysfunction that has led us to where we are now. Now, ostensibly, when you just look at it on its face, the Republican Party is doing great right now, right, because we just won everything in November. Trump is president. Republicans control the House, they control the Senate at the federal level. You know, we're doing pretty, pretty decent here in the state of Minnesota. Have some definitely have some opportunities to do better, right? Moving into 2018. But on the whole, on its on the surface, if you're just taking a snapshot of right now, Republican Party looks like it's doing pretty good. But is it? Is it really? Look at look, what have we gotten in terms of actual policy? for all of our political victories? At the federal level, the answer is more or less a big fat nothing, right? I mean, we've seen some, some executive action from the White House. We've seen some, the appointment of Neil Gorsuch, uh, the nomination of Neil Gorsuch and his confirmation to the Supreme Court, which of course is fantastic and can potentially lead to some, some good decisions down the road. And that's worth looking forward to. That's worth applauding. But aside from that, you know, where's the major legislative accomplishment? Healthcare was a big dud. Now we're moving into the tax plan, right? The tax reform is coming. And here's the thing. Here's the disrupt, the, the, the concerning aspect to what we have to look forward to on tax reform. President Donald Trump is basically looking at taking the exact same strategic approach to tax reform that he took to health care. And how did health care go? Not particularly well, right? L- let's, let's be clear about what I'm talking about here. From Bloomberg, President Donald Trump will spend the next several weeks leading a public campaign in support of a tax overhaul while the White House leaves Republican lawmakers to hash out details of the plan. This according to National Economic Council Director Gary Cohen in an interview with the Financial Times. So in other words, his plan is he's going to go out there and stump for a plan, the content of which he knows not what. And he's going to leave it to the legislators, to the gaggle of cats running around on Capitol Hill to come up with the specifics of their tax reform plan. That's a recipe for exactly what we saw in, in the healthcare care debacle, which is total chaos, a bunch of factional infighting, and at the end of it all, nothing happening, right? Now, how does this link to what I was talking about before in terms of this, this kind of cycle of— of kind of, how do they say that? Cutting off your nose to spite your face. That's been happening within the Republican Party. There is a disconnect between our espoused principles, the things that we talk about. You know, and and I'll I'll evoke the Tea Party since that's my background. You know, fiscal responsibility, constitutionally limited government, free markets.
0: Casino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. That they're associated with and
1: actual serviceable governing policy. And it's a, it's a huge gap that exists right now where people, people are more than happy to talk in lofty terms about something like something called fiscal responsibility or something called constitutionally limited government. But they don't have the first clue what to actually propose or vote on that's going to b- manifest that principle in public policy. And this is an unworkable scenario, right? In fact, it's it's a, on the long term, it's actually a recipe for disaster. Because in the long term, what it does is, is it discredits those principles. It discredits those ideas in the minds of the public. Because when you're constantly preaching about how, hey, we're the party of fiscal responsibility. We're the party of constitutionally limited government, we're the party of free markets, and then you get elected and you don't know how to do any of that stuff, then the impression from the general public is, well, all that stuff doesn't work because we we voted for it and they they quote-unquote tried it and it didn't accomplish anything, right? This is why it's important. It's deeply, deeply important for us to have thoughtful proposals that actually put these principles into action. And what I'm trying to open your mind to tonight trying to provoke you to think about at the very least is is our is the current party dogma on taxes and spending and fiscal policy does it actually translate to budgets we can propose bills we can introduce and pass policy we can enact that's actually going to accomplish the things that we're constantly Preaching uh, is, is the panacea for our culture. Something worth thinking about. 651 989 5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, twincitiesnewstalk.com. So I got a private message that I missed, seeing as I was on the air and all, uh, from a listener while I was going off on one of my rants in the, the last half hour here regarding taxation. And the party dogma, the movement dogma, conservative dogma on fiscal responsibility. What, the, what does that actually mean? What's our, what's our practical solution to real-world governmental problems where, where we can actually apply this concept of fiscal responsibility in a way that is effective in terms of accomplishing the, the task that uh, that government has been given to, uh, to do? Um, and also remaining true to that principle, not as easy as it sounds, and uh, the the lack of having a clear thinking on that process has led us to a point where, in my view, and you know, admittedly a a, a pro, no doubt a minority view, and certainly an unconventional view, it has led us to a point where we don't really have a good we don't have really have a good connect, a good machine that connects our grassroots passions with the task of getting people elected, and then the more important task of actually governing once they're elected. And so in response to all that, you know, I used the example of, let's say you have a park. We had this story that Alpha News reported on some months back regarding a, a shoreline, park shoreline in Excelsior. And there was a, a sales tax that was imposed in order to provide for renovations and uh, maintenance in that park. And the question that I asked was, you know, as a conservative, should you be against that because it's a tax hike? Is the conservative solution to just let the park deteriorate, let the park collapse. And in response to that, I got the private message from a listener, and this was his answer. And I think it's a very fair answer. Fundraise. That's how you get it done. Fundraise. In other words, you go out as, as a, to private entities, to private individuals, private companies, and you raise the money in order to maintain the park. Gotcha. Here's the problem with that, right? Because again, the context here is coming up with a, a way of interpreting these principles that one, gets people elected, and two, is actually functional within the, the, the task of governing. Yeah, you can fundraise, and people do, right? There's all manner of fundraising that takes place. We name parks after people. We name parks after organizations and corporations and what have you. That does take place, but at some level, it, it continues to remain the responsibility of whatever government entity, usually municipalities, to maintain the parks. Basically, what you're advocating for when, you, when the only answer you give me is fundraise, is you're advocating for privatizing the parks. That's what you're saying. Privatize the parks. Now look, as a libertarian, I'm with you, right? Like philosophically, I'm 100% with you. Privatize those parks. Make them, sell them to a private entity that wants to maintain them or that wants to plow them over and build them all. Like, I don't care. Just get rid of, we shouldn't be, government should not be in the park business. I'm with you on that philosophically. But here's the problem. We're talking about the context of real-world politics. We're talking about the context of being able. And here's the thing: you know this as well as I do. Point me to the person. Point me to the candidate who has gone out and even attempted to campaign on, "I'm the guy who's going to close the parks." I don't. I don't think there's been a person who's even attempted to do it, because it's absurd. Nobody's going to vote for that person, right? Like, no matter how conservative or libertarian you think your town is, it's got a park. It's probably got six, right? It's probably got a dozen. And the people love them, and they expect them to be maintained, right? No matter how libertarian or conservative you think your town is, they got a fire department, right? And they expect those engines to run and be well-maintained and serviced and be able to respond quickly. And that all costs money. And this is what I'm driving towards here is we have to have— we have to rethink what we mean by fiscal responsibility because it can't just be we don't spend money on things. It can't just be we don't raise revenue. It has to be we, we focus the, both the taxation and the spending on those items that government properly ought to be engaged in operating, right? And the, let me give you a practical example of the closest i've seen in in my travels to a candidate who properly articulated this and he didn't he didn't do it in the way that i've been doing for the past 40 minutes which is this kind of you know high level sort of uh, conceptual explanation He d- he d- he did a very simple pivot to something we can all understand and it was tom emmer back when he was running for governor in 2010 at the was it 2010 i can't remember off the top of my head i think it was 2010 at the height of the tea party movement. And his his spiel was basically this. What we're going to do uh, under my administration as Tom Ever Emmer, governor of Minnesota, is we're going to go back to the state constitution, right? And we're going to look at what does the state constitution say that the state government is supposed to do? And based upon that, we are going to reprioritize our spending in order to focus on those things which are constitutionally required for the state of Minnesota. And we're going to cut everything else. That's how you do it. That's how you define fiscal responsibility. By saying, look, why are we spending billions of dollars on things that our state government isn't even constituted to do, right? And the idea, then you get into this this magical scenario where you can say, look, we have the money in order to do the things that the constitution says the government ought to do. We just have to stop spending it on all the things that the constitution doesn't speak to at all, right? That's a way, that's a functional, workable, and I would, I believe, potentially popular way of articulating fiscal responsibility in such a way as that it doesn't evoke the, first of all, the the traditional partisan divides, but also it has the virtue of of being attainable like you can actually go out and do that right one of the things that's in our state constitution by the way you know for, and and again this is within the context of looking at this from a libertarian perspective one of the things that's in our state constitution as a requirement for the state to provide is education public education now again as a libertarian that runs that that rubs me the wrong way right like i don't think for a variety of reasons, that government ought to be involved in the education business whatsoever. In my perfect world, it wouldn't be. There would be a constitutional separation of state and education. But that's not the Constitution we have, right? That's not the political reality that we're operating in. So in a context where it is in the state constitution of Minnesota that that we will provide public education, the question becomes, how do you do it in such a way as to as to best apply your principles, as to as to provide the best product possible, while still you know without rewriting the Constitution. I mean, I guess you could try that. And again, you know, I go back to the the hypothetical example of the guy who knocks on doors trying to win a, a city council seat on the policy of "I'm going to close down the parks." I, I I would love to see the person who emerges. Who's going to campaign for state representative or state Senate or governor of the state on the campaign of, hey, we're going to amend the Constitution to take away public education. You know, the, these philosophical arguments that we engage in and, and these principles that we we banty about, and, you know, I'm as guilty of it as anybody, right? They, at some point, that rubber needs to meet this thing called the road, and it actually has to result in workable campaigns an achievable policy that moves us in the right direction. And this is something that the left, which I've yet to evoke at all this hour, right? 45 minutes, that might be a record. This is something that the left understands very, very well. They understand the distance between their ideal, right? Socialism, communism, and where the world is right now. And they are willing to and mindful of ways in which they can incrementally inch their way from here to there, we don't seem to have that on our side. On our side, it's absolutism. On our side, amongst the, and I'm, I'm specifically talking about my people right now, right? The grassroots, the activists, the people who go to BPOU meetings, the people who go to caucuses. We, we have this attitude of no, it's got to be 100% the right way, the principal way today, not tomorrow. Either that or you're a rhino. And. To, to some extent, I get that frustration. I share that frustration. You've listened to me rant and rave about what's been happening in Washington, D.C. since Donald Trump got elected, right? I, I'm, I'm with you on the frustration. But after getting that out of your system, there comes a point at which you got to sit down, put pen to paper, and come up with a plan, a workable, achievable plan to actually change it. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. How low on the totem pole do you have to be to get the assignment as a television news reporter to stand in the middle of the Category 4 hurricane? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and give the play by play as the raid you know, the guy the guys standing there his feet are planted right like he's he's actively pushing against the wind that's but it's insane that he's standing out there but i i kind of want him to stay out there that's kind of that's kind of how it works that's why he's there it's funny it is funny and that's why <laughs> that's why they put him out there but i i just know like this guy is like fourth string like he has to be lowest man like most recent hire that, that to draw that particular short stick. You don't see Al Roker out there, you know, facing down the wind. We're going to talk about uh, the, the hur- Hurricane Harvey and how that plays into the, the political questions that that raises uh, probably next hour here. We're going to continue for this last segment uh, for, for uh, at least the next couple of minutes talking about how we apply our principles as conservatives, as Republicans, as libertarians, how we apply our principles yeah, and this concept of fiscal responsibility to actual policy. you know, what what bills do we introduce? What bills do we author? You know what what budgets do we set that are actually going to fulfill the the conflicting goals of, on the one hand, satisfying uh, a grassroots sense of principle, and also, actually governing people which is kind of what you're you're angling to do when you run for public office closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 1035 fm 651 989 5855 let's go to david in woodbury welcome to the program sir
2: hello you want me to turn on my radio
1: that would be fantastic i'll even uh, give you a few words here of cover so that you can go ahead and take care of that right now appreciate it very much
2: you're on my phone on bluetooth i'm sorry no, no problem <laughs> Anyway, um, in general terms, when I hear these kinds of discussions, it it brings to mind something called Hegel's dialectic, and for those people that haven't studied it, I'm not an expert on it. But the thing is that they rely on the left, in particular, because they apply it constantly. Is they want people to compromise, right? And and, and part of their way of getting that happen, making that happen, is they vilify and make certain groups of people into the bad people. Mm -hmm. And Then, since they're bad, you can ignore them. Right. And so they consistently are able, if when people buy into it, to say, oh, well, we have to compromise. And the point is, there are some things that you don't compromise on, and that's what they don't want to hear, because People that have principles and they have principles that they won't compromise on, they can't get to change. And they call people like that racist, bigots, um, you know, headed, stupid, ignorant, rednecks, all these other terms in order to vilify them and make them look bad to other groups of people. But that being said, with what's been going on with the news over the last few years, and particularly last year, I, I talk to so many people, and, you know, they're, they're all supposed to be mad at Trump, right? Uh-huh. And people I talk to aren't. Uh-huh. And back back when the election was going on, back, say, as early as March, when I was talking to people about it, and I'm talking about people that are in their 20s and 30s, too, they all were, or not all, but about 50% of them thought they were probably going to vote for Trump. Another 25% of those really wanted to vote for Bernie, right? Mm-hmm. And the other 25% were kind of leaning towards Hillary. Well, when Bernie fell out of this the contest, the comments I heard were, I can't vote for Hillary because I don't like her or I don't trust her. Now, that wasn't from everybody, but that was from that remaining uh, the, the Bernie Bernie Sanders voters that yeah. weren't going to get Bernie now. That's about half of those people were saying that. Right. So when the election happened... I wasn't surprised
1: your your observation is uh, is very apropos to one of the stories that we might get to next hour regarding what happened with those voters who were supporting Bernie Sanders once we move towards the general election but I'm struggling to see how it ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of how you apply the principle uh, of fiscal policy to actual legislation there,
2: there are there are principles that you don't compromise on for example I want smaller government. I don't there's no compromise with that.
1: I right, but okay, so let me, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question cuz again, as as somebody who comes from a Tea Party background, as somebody who identifies as a libertarian and who's been Republican my entire life, I get you. Like I understand that impulse for quote unquote smaller government. But and I'm not trying to be facetious here, What does that mean? Like, just arbitrarily smaller? Like, smaller in all cases? In other words, if somebody came out with a proposal to cut the military by 50%, that's smaller government, would you support that?
2: Um, Not necessarily.
1: Well, and that's what I'm saying.
2: let Let me clarify for you. What I would support is going to the Constitution, looking at what it says, when we use our military, and based on that, making a judgment about how big our military should be. In other words... We are not supposed to be the world's policemen.
1: Sure, That's sure. the
2: Constitution. Sure. Okay? Now, it's under the enumerated powers. Again, another thing that people aren't familiar with, they need to understand. We have a Constitution, and we're supposed to abide by it. It's been walked all over. Yeah. And one of those things is the enumerated powers. Mm-hmm. So the government has specific roles that they have, and otherwise they're all supposed to be left to the states. Okay? Right. Well, for example, the Department of Education has existed, what, since Jimmy Carter's administration?
1: I believe so that's correct. Did,
2: so how did we have education? Yeah, right. <laughs> which, and if you go look at an eighth grade graduation test in 1900 for yeah. the state of Minnesota, try to pass that. Right, yeah. No, I, I hear not, you. I'm I hear not you. stupid,
1: right. but yeah. I can't pass it. No, I, I, I appreciate your call, David, and, and the points you make are, are definitely worthwhile. I appreciate you listening to the program. Yeah, I mean, the, the, and at the end there, uh, perhaps unwittingly, David found himself in total agreement with what it is I'm trying to say. And maybe I I get the sense, you know, I'm not getting any feedback from you guys. This is a one-way conversation. I'm in front of a mic, and the mic isn't nodding. It's not providing me nonverbals. So I don't know how well what I've been trying to say this hour is connecting with you or not. But what, what David was articulating there is basically what I'm advocating for, that instead of just arbitrarily saying, you know, we're we're not going to have any tax increases or arbitrarily saying we're going to have smaller government, quote unquote, quote unquote, just smaller, right? We're going to reduce the size or reduce the scope. All of those things can be good, right? But only in a context where you define what any of that means, right? So, to go through this process of saying, all right, we're going to look at the governing document, the Constitution, to determine what it is that that our government entity is even supposed to be doing, whether you're talking about the federal level or the state level, and then we're going to take a look at what is actually in the budget now, what is actually in the law now, and we're going to cut the fat, right? We're going to trim it down. To not arbitrarily, not just cut it to cut it, right? Not just have like a random, all of us are just going to shave 15% off our budgets, but we're still going to have things like corporate welfare. That would be absurd. No, you say we're getting rid of the corporate welfare, right? We're getting rid of the, the entitlement program that's that's bankrupting the country. We're getting rid of these things that aren't constitutional and thereby shrinking government, but shrinking it to the purpose of maintaining the entity that protects individual rights. That's the objective that we ought to be preaching and that we ought to be pursuing both in our campaigns and once elected to office. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.